This is Words That Move Me, the podcast where movers and shakers like you get the information and inspiration you need to navigate your creative career with clarity and confidence. I am your host, Master Mover, Dana Wilson. And if you're someone that loves to learn, laugh, and is looking to rewrite the starving artist story, then sit tight, but don't stop moving, because you're in the right place. All right, all right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Words That Move Me. I'm Dana. I am so jazzed about this episode, and I know that I always say that, but really, this one is special. It is special because my guests are special. So special. It is special because I learned so much about myself, about my craft, about my relationship to the world that I'm living in right now. Um, And I also learned a lot more about audio editing. So here comes the heads up. The audio quality is not the greatest on this episode, but the every other quality is the greatest. So... This episode is my win for the week. Your turn. What's going well in your world? Let's see if I can keep tempo. Five, six, and a seven. Yes. Good for you. I'm so glad that you're winning. Keep it up and celebrate yourself. It's so important. Okay, now I don't want to take too much more time before I invite you to the table, well, the Zoom, I guess, with my guests today. Spencer Theberg is originally from Portland, Juilliard grad, danced for NDT2 and NDT1, that's Netherlands Dance Theater for you non-dance types, Um, the Forsyth Company, he's the winner of the Princess Grace Award, he currently teaches for CalArts, but most importantly I want to tell you that his choreography (laughs) makes me weep tears of laughter, and also tears of a very special brand of admiration. He is a truly special artist, and I am so honored and flattered to call him, to call both of these gentlemen my friends. All right, so up next, we have the one and only Jermaine Spivey. He is from Baltimore, also a Juilliard grad, also a Princess Grace winner, also has danced for all of the companies that I oogle and all of the companies that you should Google. Um, He is currently teaching for USC, Kaufman, but beyond all of those things, I cannot think of a single thing more mesmerizing in this world than watching Jermaine dance. That was at least until we had this conversation, and I learned that it is equally mesmerizing to dig in to words with him, with him and with Spencer both. Truly mesmerizing. Um, This conversation simply blows my mind wide open. So without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Jermaine Spivey and Spencer Theberg. Spencer and Jermaine, holy smokes, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I am thrilled to have you. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) What? We're thrilled to be here. Thank you, thank you. Um, This is kind of par for the course. This is sort of how I do it on the pod. Please introduce yourselves. Um, Okay. I will introduce myself. (laughs) Uh, my name is Jermaine Spivey. I am an artist. I'm a performing artist. I am a choreographer. I am an educator. I am a learner. I am a person in this world that um, loves to create and connect to people that creates That's a beautiful introduction. Thank you. Nice to meet you. (laughs) All right, Spencer, hit it. I'm Spencer Theberg, and that is how you say my last name. I've been saying it wrong for like four years now. (laughs) Yes, it's true. I am Spencer Theberg. 
uh, I also echo what Jermaine says. I am an artist. I work in I work in dance, but I don't feel like I only live in dance. I am excited by interdisciplinary things. Um, I'm interested in collaborations and the and permeable worlds in terms of art and genre. Um, I teach, I dance, uh, and I'm also, Jermaine and I are partners, and we're partners also in our work that we're making too. You guys, this is the first time I'm having a couple on the podcast. <gasps> yes! I'm so jazzed about this. Okay. Um, thank you for your introductions. I have a million questions for you about your work and what it's like to collaborate with your significant other and what it is like to be in an interracial relationship in the summer of 2020 and how the Black Lives Matter movement is impacting you and how are you impacting it and what it means to be like, whoa, all the things I have all the questions. So slow down, Wilson. Um, let me simplify and ask you. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, okay. Let me just simplify and ask you to tell me something you would like for people to know about your relationship. Mm. Or is it top secret? Oh, no, it's just where, <laughs> where to start. Um, I think, yeah, okay, I'm going to start that off. I think I would like people to know that it is, it's a constant effort. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Um, it's actually very positive that it is a constant effort. Um, we're constantly trying to see each other for who we are and how we're evolving and how we do that together, how we do that side by side. Um, I really, really, really don't respond to the idea of you know, you meet someone and you both stay the same, and that is, you know, happily ever after. Like, you're the same person I met. It's like, yes, I am a version of that person, but I'm also hopefully changing and growing and learning and evolving the entire time. And I'm definitely trying to do that next person that I love. Uh, we're next to each other, we're with each other. We are changing, okay? talking about summer of 2020. Change, baby, change. We are both changed right now from how we were at the start of this year. Big change, and yeah. I, I would also add um, or piggyback and say that um, there's the idea that we're always partners. It's not like we are, we are, and then what I mean by that is our relationship um, as partners we're always doing that. We're doing that when we're making work together. We're doing that when we're making breakfast together. We're doing that when Jermaine's on a tour and I'm home. Uh, we're not physically together. We're always partners. And sometimes I think that there's, um, you know, the compartmentalizing idea of we we are not we're not in our relationship when we're making work together. For instance, like once we enter this room, it's a it's a different it's a different story or something and that's not the case with us we very much are always exploring and interrogating what our relationship means and that's in the art we make as well uh, and I think that we hope that our art changes and develops over time and so why don't why not treat ourselves like that too that we can change and develop over time Ah, I love that sentiment. I love the idea of perpetual evolution and uh, specifically, hopefully, progress, right? Um, also, Jermaine, I'm so glad you brought up effort. And uh, that is what I would like to segue with into this next part of the conversation. So I think it was after, and we can go back a little bit to our history as friends in a second, but I think it was after Gen 4, which was certainly the most um, amount of time I spent with you guys, like, period. <laughs> but I, I think after Gen 4, um, I dug into a search for more of you both, because after that week of watching you dance, I just could not 
sate myself. So I, I was just looking for more. And I remember stumbling upon um, a short film that was directed by Dana Kasperson. And it's part of her um, Changing the Conversation book. I think she made little chunks from her book, Changing yeah, the yeah. Conversation, The 17 Principles of Conflict Re Resolution. And um, I was so delighted by this thing. Uh, and then I dug more on Dana and I became so delighted by her. Uh, she says that conflict is the origin of all creative action, which is like the smarter, older sibling version of my saying, which is creativity is simply problem solving. But she she says that conflict is inevitable. And she adds that destructive conflict is not inevitable. That's the, the choice part. Um, she, she explains describing non-destructive conflict as just dynamic tension, effort, and to me, that sounds kind of like fun. Dynamic tension reminds me of a first date or of like the early years of a relationship. Dynamic tension sounds like, oh, I like that versus conflict is something that I think is is kind of has this negative connotation. Um, but uh, one of the things I like most about you guys, both in your life and in your work, is that you don't avoid conflict or effort um, or tension. Actually, I would say that you guys are both masters of tension and release of tension. Spencer, you do it with humor. Jermaine, you do it with your body. Um, could you guys talk about how you use tension in your work and in your relationship? Wow, Dana, thank you. I love that that's some, something you're observing um, because it's we talk about conflict all the time and it is really at the heart of our creations. It's also at the heart of the process of creating. Um, we get along really well. We disagree. I wouldn't say we fight. We have maybe fought everyone in 10 years. However, we're both really, um, we really believe what we believe and we really care about the things that we believe in. And those things are, are often at odds and that doesn't feel good, but it's sort of like a thank goodness type thing because uh, what I want to relate it to is this idea that it, you, you have to have conflict in order to have a good leader. Otherwise the curtain goes up and maybe somebody proposes to the other person and that person says yes and then it's over. There's no conflict and the curtain goes down and it ends. And so there's the thought that if you want something to be sustainable, if you want, and I'm talking now in a performative way, if you want to sustain interest for the audience, there's got to be conflict there for people to have a hook. Yes. So we, we lean into the conflict. Um, and since our work is usually um, a kind of lens into our, into our relationship as partners, um, we then lean into the inherent conflicts between each other um and allow them to be present in the work so that the work can sustain yeah it's a belief i mean it, it feels like a belief like a value and for making work to me is this idea of conflict so i love that you see it and that you're thinking about that 100 percent um do you have anything you want to add jay um i'm just listening to talk <laughs> and i feel like conflict is also about diversity and uh, it's about opposition. Uh, I think we're realizing right now in this moment that we can't continue to curate this weird streamlined version of reality where there are there's no diversity, right? Like where we where we force people to conform to being the same, and we and we force people to have the same values and the same way of expressing those values it's just it's not realistic and there's no opposition there's no opposition there's no opposition and we know because we're dancers who've done pirouettes before that <laughs> you cannot lift up without also pushing down you won't have a successful rotation if you don't do both 
Um, this is what I'm inspired by right now is this idea. And I know it's very self gratifying, but is this idea that dancers just might be the best people to deal with and lead in a time like this, because we have understanding and uh, the ability to think kind of physically and know the importance of something like opposition, know the importance of something like <laughs> Spacing, <laughs> for example. But I just, I I would love to hear um, a little bit more from you guys on what some other dancer or choreographer characteristics might be helpful right now to, to all, not just to dance types. Spatial awareness is the first thing that came to mind. Um, it's not just about avoiding bumping into people on the street. It's about space. It's about an understanding of how to occupy space, um, how to leave room for other people, um, which is something that I think has been very missing from, you know, the conversation in our way of life here in the U.S. We have created a lot of extremes and not so much space for room for people to exist in. And that doesn't work. And I think that that actually, I think we experience that in the dance world, which maybe we'll have a chance to kind of get into a little bit more uh, later, but this idea of where you exist inside of the dance world and things sometimes not, I mean, sometimes for, for a lot of people, it's always feeling like there's, there's no intersection or, um, uh, blending of worlds and experiences and I'm also thinking about blending of forms and blending of techniques but um, I'd like to first before getting into that talk about also I think dance has the ability to help us train an idea of empathy I was just thinking about a rehearsal Jermaine and I had the other day where we were doing some partnering and I needed to know what something felt like for him in order to do my job for him, to help him. So I, he had me do it, do his role, so I could feel what it felt like in his body. And then I knew better, it didn't change instantly, but I had a better ability to make um, a helpful choice for him as a partner. And that made me feel like, oh, what we're actually doing is training that thing we're trying to talk about right now, which is, this is how this feels for me. Can you hear me say that? Like, can you put that on? This is how this feels for me. And, and we do that sometimes without even knowing that that's unusual for some people in their world and in their life. And right now, since uh, I've been teaching a lot online and, and you know, theoretically everyone's alone in their kitchen like I am teaching, right? And so I'm trying to still figure out how to teach this idea or promote this idea of empathy. And I think we can relate to ourselves and our own bodies empathetically as well and have that same process of like, what does that feel like for you, knees? And then if I'm, if I'm fostering a sense of empathy in my own body, isn't it then or couldn't it then be easier to be empathetic with the wider world? Okay. Pause for the cause and let that sink in for a second. <laughs> All right. In episode three with Chloe Arnold, we talked about how dance lessons are life lessons. We talked about all the different ways that dance has prepared us for life. And we dug pretty deep. Um, I highly suggest you go back and check that out if you haven't already, or maybe even revisit that one if it's been a while. But even in all of that discussion with Chloe, it had never dawned on me that perhaps the most important and powerful and, dare I say, essential human quality, empathy, can be practiced physically through dance. <laughs> this was a massive aha moment for me. I, I danced as a swing on my most recent world tour. And uh, for those of you that don't know, a swing is somebody that knows and must be able to dance anyone in the show's track. Um, a track just means their part, I guess. So for that show, for the Man of the Woods tour, 
I learned all of the ladies and even took it upon myself to learn my male counterpart dancers tracks. Um, And it was my job to jump in for anybody in the event that they needed me to fill in. And man, wow. If it is recommended to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, I highly recommend that you try dancing in them. (laughs) I gained a tremendous understanding and appreciation for my fellow dancers by learning their show, by dancing in their shoes. I did wear my own shoes, but that's neither here nor there. I think that perhaps the best part of what I'm learning from this conversation and from what Spencer is saying is that learning and appreciating can happen for me, in me, like having empathy for parts of myself. Wow, just whoa. Okay, I had to jump out and highlight that and sort of plant a seed so that next time you find yourself in conflict with yourself or with someone else, you might find an opportunity to practice empathy. Okay, that's it. Let's jump back in. Yes, I can still connect and, you know, physically partner with this person that doesn't weigh the same as I do, that has a different shape than I do, that that comes from a different understanding of dance, comes from a background than I do, but we can meet and we figure it out. I mean, that's what happens. It happens again all the time in companies. And then you leave that company, you go to another place, it's a whole new group of people, and you start that process over again. And just thinking about how many times dancers do that, whether it's in a company or a gig or you know, in a shoot, you meet these people on a shoot day that you you may never see again, but you have to come together as a team for the common goal. Yes. We're so versed at doing that. Yes. It gets bumpy along the way. It's it not always bumpy. great. It's not always whatever perfect for me, but I think that's also Oh, those are excellent points uh, that I really hadn't considered. The concept of actually sharing weight and feeling feelings of you know, trading roles. Like we do that in dance. I will dance your role. I will try to be your track. Um, I'll try to lift you the way that you lift me in that lift. Like I can't think of a, of a better way to practice empathy. Um, but also this idea that we are basically constantly, uh, building and then breaking down and then rebuilding new teams with different objectives. And that is such an important skill to have. I think dancers are really, really good at being quick to volunteer, quick to make changes, quick to uh, make friends. And part of that is the nature of how quickly our world and our creative processes work, especially here in LA. There certainly aren't we, we don't have the luxury of long rehearsal processes for most projects. And I mean, no rehearsal process now, no in-person rehearsal process now. So yeah, we, we've gotten very good at doing certain things. Um, what are we not good at? Yes. Well, we're not always good at recognizing our individual contributions to the mess. I, I feel like I've been, uh, I've been a performer in a contemporary concert dance company. And I've been in these moments with the company where we're complaining and we're like, this is happening and this is happening and this is happening. This company sucks. And we, everybody gets on the, this company sucks train. And it's like, we're the company. You know, I mean, yes, there is an administrative body that is governing the situation, but also we, we actually have a lot more say on the dynamic of how things go than we think. And there's something in structure, there's something in the way a lot of things are organized that causes us to forget that. I mean, every company that I've ever been a part of, with the exception of maybe one, has had like really rocky leadership. And again, that's not a dig, it's layered, right? I think that's something that happens because there's many different aspects to running the company. And then of course, the dancers feel the brunt of that, but then we can get caught in just complaining about it and just suffering it 
and that becomes our story. Like I'm just suffering this situation and this is how it has to be. Woe is me, I'm a dancer. And then at some point you have to realize there are other things that I can do and other ways that I can respond to the situation that will change me. And usually if I change myself, that is reflected in the person next to me and then the person next to them and the person next to them. I would like to talk a little bit more about voice specifically. You've used it in your work in a way that I think is very attractive, but I know that for a lot of dancers using our voice, like our actual vocal cords is terrifying. I'll speak for myself as for one. Um, could you guys share maybe a story of, of being asked to use your voice or maybe why you, why you love to use voice? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. I, I think a bit of context is helpful and to know that I grew up um, like equal parts. I was training at a dance studio uh, after school, but in school I was, I was training in theater. I was working, I was like a drama kid. And I was really, really torn between these two worlds. And I felt a lot of angst over that, of like this having to make a choice. And I ultimately chose dance because I love it. It wasn't like um, session or anything. I, I knew dance in my body. And I didn't know theater in my body, if that makes sense. So I followed it, but I definitely felt like I'd made a choice and closed a pathway, closed um, some kind of world in myself. And it wasn't until I moved to Europe and I was working on a creation with a choreographer at Netherlands Dance Theater. And I was, I was asked to use my voice and I was sort of like, oh, I know that person. That's that person from high school. Like who knows they use their voice and loves to speak and has this sense of theater and, and drama. And it was like inviting a part of myself to the party who hadn't got to be at the party for like 10 years. And from that point on, it, that was it. I was, I was like, if I'm not getting to explore all of me, I'm just not sure if I'm that interested. And sometimes it feels right to make the choice to just dance, but there's a difference between saying you can only dance and right now you're just dancing. Versus like just knowing that it's always like I always have the ability to use my voice if that's the right choice for this particular communication right now or to, I don't know, sing or make a dress or dance or like get behind this camera and and operate this projector or whatever, like whatever the moment calls for, I want to feel like I'm allowed and have permission to to deliver that. And that feels like, that feels like pursuit of, of me, to me. <laughs> like, that's, that's awesome. I love the, the 360 degree approach to making. Um, I also love the, the concept of giving permission to use voice. And when you said that, I realized that um, I would say like fully 50% of my professional work is me lip syncing to something, but you, you cannot be lip syncing because it looks like, you know, your, your neck, your muscles aren't working. You can sell somebody's lip syncing. So even on the projects where I'm lip syncing, they ask you to sing out. And as I, so, so to me, that's permission, right? You're playing a track at volume. That's not my voice. They, 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 they won't hear my voice. Maybe, I don't know. They probably have a microphone hidden somewhere. But to me, that's permission to sing out. And I, I wonder if that metaphor kind of breaks the part of this conversation that's important to me, which is it being your voice. But um, Jermaine, specifically, I'm curious what you'd have to say about this, because now that I'm talking about lip syncing, I'm remembering that maybe my favorite performance of yours is Kid Pivot's uh, Betrophen Height your your lip syncing right that is that your voice or are you are you lip syncing or i'm lip syncing you never hear my actual voice in the show that's that's embodiment that's embodiment you could not tell me that's not your voice yeah. it's so, okay so just straight up curiosity what was your approach to making somebody's voice that's not your voice look like your voice um 
That is a good question. It, it was, it was a few different things. It's the physicality of just the steps and the way that, uh, you know, with Crystal, we decided my character would, would move. That movement directed the character. And so then that character tells me how I need to lip sync. Then the other level of that layer of that was listening to the track and getting familiar with the rhythm and the cadence and the timing of how Jonathan was speaking and when there was breathing and when there wasn't breathing. And every year that we performed the show, we peeled back another layer of the audio. I think when we first did it, we were not in the place where we could hear every breath, for example, that was in the audio track. And then when we came back to do it, we remounted it. We were like, has that breath always been there? Like, I hear it differently now. So then the second year was really all about trying to embody now all of the breath. And then the third year was like the breath and the little crackles of, you know, saliva, or like when he's opening and closing his mouth. And we've done that also with Reviser. Ah, oh, Jermaine, it's so good. It's one of my favorite things to watch. Um, I'm not sure if Marquee TV is still doing a 30 days free thing. Um, and is Betrofen Height still up? Betrofen Height is up and Reviser is now there as well. I will be linking to that in the show notes, please. You guys, this is mandatory viewing. Um, okay, cool. Moving right along. Um you guys both went to Juilliard. You're both teachers. You teach at the college level. And I know I have a lot of listeners out there who dream of attending prestigious schools like that and of having careers like yours. Um, what would you tell them that you wish somebody had told you when you embarked on your journey of higher education? Yeah, something comes to mind for me instantly. And I remember, um, I think it's so so important and so wonderful and so necessary to have goals. But what I remember is that I had tunnel vision with my goals. When especially going into college and through college uh, into, into like the professional world. So my goals um, confused me at times uh, because they, what they did is they said, this is important for your goals. This isn't important for your goal. And so there was a bit of, I love school and I love to learn, but even as someone who loves to learn, um, there's a little bit of like, I'll need this, I won't need this type of thing for the goals that I have for my future. And what I wish someone had told me is what I'm experiencing now and continue to experience is that you don't know what your goals are going to be after you get a taste of maybe the goal that you're interested in. The goals might change. They're likely to change. And aren't you, or maybe you will wish that you had absorbed a little bit more completely than, uh, than you did when it was offered to you. I've found myself often wishing that I had um, taken better notes or paid more attention in a particular course because I feel like I need it now, um, you know, 10 plus years later. And I just didn't know that at the time. So that thought of, of um, hoarding information with accepting the idea that you don't know what you're gonna be interested in and you don't know what you might need, so you might as well value it all like you're gonna need it all. Um, will you guys play a game with me really quick? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's, um, full disclosure, it's not actually a game. It's an exercise, but we're going to call it a game because that's more fun. So I have started, um, categorizing my goals now in tiers. I do these three tiers. My first tier, uh, of goals is the goals I could accomplish right now. If literally, if I just did it. Like the action is the missing part, not the resources or the, um, the ideas themselves, but like right now I could accomplish this. Um, tier two is with a little bit more support, whether it's in manpower or finance or time or whatever, with a little more support, I could accomplish this. And then tier three is rip the lid off, no ceiling, nobody ever would say no, you will not hear the word no, what, like that's tier three no rules, no limits at all. So I would love to hear from you guys three tiers 
of goals? You know, I'm already I'm I'm already gonna do the game, not how the game is supposed to be played. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Break the rules. I'm, I am because man, it's really, really, really layered. Um, okay, go. I want the depth. I think I have learned from a very young age not to set goals. Um, and that has been a superpower <laughs> for me in my life. It hasn't actually had a negative effect on me, um, but it maybe comes from you know, something that is negative, which is related to you know being a black person in this country. Um, and my mom, because I grew up with my mom in particular, feeling um, sometimes like she was not supported in the way she needed to be to really get to that goal. Um, or just feeling like I just I I I watched my mom adapt and survive in the most beautiful way. And I feel like I learned from that that life can also just be about adapting. And that isn't a lack of focus or power. Or imagination. Or imagination. Um, so there are many ways to choose, you know, how to organize it. And I, I, I don't really set goals. Um, I know that sounds weird, but I do. I do stuff. I do stuff and then I pay attention to how that feels and where it's leading me. And then when I'm there, I feel led to the next thing and then I go there. And that's how my whole dance career has been. Um, I never decided I want to go study at a conservatory. I just, I decided I like dancing, so then I continued. I didn't even want to dance. My mother forced me to go to dance. Then I realized I like it, so I stepped, I kept going. And then someone was like, you should audition for the school. Nothing about you are. But I went because I trusted that person's opinion, and they were right. And while I was at Juilliard, I had a teacher that was like, you should look into this place, which I did. And, you know, listening to the voices didn't mean that I only listened to what people told me to do. And I took in that information. Sometimes they were exactly right, so I went with them. But sometimes it was about hearing what they had to say to help me understand what I was feeling intuitively so that I can make my own choice. It continues to be that way. And the older I get, I feel like it's really just about deciding to do stuff. Um, for me personally, I think people should set goals if that is how they need to function um, and, and to plan ahead. But that just hasn't really been a part of my spirit as a person to plan ahead. It gets me in trouble <laughs> in different ways because of the world that we that we live in. But it also provides me a lot by not feeling. Um, I don't feel precious about the trajectory of my life in that way. Would you be willing to go into what you mean when you say gets you in trouble? Yes. I mean, in the, in the kind of like little micro versions of that, it's like sometimes I don't plan far enough ahead so that I can be on time. So then I'm late, you know, and that's, that's like a little, little tiny version of that. Um, I think it gets me in trouble sometimes because then with in interactions with other people, sometimes there are expectations that are not met. And yes, because I think the way that I do, I understand that and I I see sometimes what that means for certain for people in certain circumstances, but I also feel like I am not always responsible for delivering that expectation. Full stop. Wow. In hearing Jermaine's point of view about setting goals, I experienced the moment that I've felt quite a bit lately, the shameful moment that many of my listeners out there may be feeling lately as well. 
And that is the moment where your privilege is revealed to you in a place that you hadn't noticed it before. I truly relish the goal-setting practice. I called it a game. It literally is fun to me. Because my goal-setting practice doesn't get me in trouble. It gets me my desired results. And what I learned from Jermaine is that the accomplishment of my goals is absolutely not entirely attributable to the goal-setting practice itself. I am a white, able-bodied, heterosexual woman who grew up in a middle-class suburban home with two parents who, although divorced, both loved and supported me tremendously. And my life experience has taught me that dreaming big mostly works. Someone else's experience might teach them that dreaming big mostly hurts. I know that now. And that doesn't mean that setting goals is bad. And that doesn't mean that I am bad for setting goals. It means that setting goals is not a default setting. I, I do think it's important to mention that the thing that excited me and still excites me most about setting goals is that especially in that third kind of no ceilings, impossible tier, something is only impossible until it's possible. And I find tremendous inspiration and power in that. All right, let's jump back in and hear what Jermaine the man who seemingly defies gravity and every other law of physics in his dancing, makes of doing the impossible. Buckle up. For me, I respond to what if it isn't impossible? Like, what if impossible is not a thing? It's a construct for us to relate to, but it's not really a thing. And I say that because, like, you know, often... When I improvise, I use text. And I talk about, I'm never trying to do something cool or impossible. I'm never deciding now I'm gonna do something that is anti-gravity. Like those things happen because I'm doing something that is really simple to me in the breakdown of all of the things that I'm I am moving my shoulder to the right and at the same time sliding my chin to the left. And if I do that and I involve my hips and my heel, I miraculously made it around this time. And I wasn't trying to do that. I lived that experience in various ways of my life and I'm never really trying to do something impossible or spectacular. that is that is very important to me on the subject of effort if we could circle back to effort you look effortless when you dance but it's not because what you're doing is easy it's because you're focusing your efforts into very specific simple places or simple tasks that is fascinating and i'd like to jump in on that as someone who gets to watch Jermaine work but um, his sense of validation is really inside himself. It's not, it's not bound to external sources. And a small interjection, I had to work on that because for so much of my younger life, I felt really bound to what I thought were people's expectations of me. And that it hurt, I hurt myself. No one did that to me, I did that to myself. Fulfilling that expectation for everyone else, I caused myself hurt and suppression and guilt for things that I shouldn't have felt guilty for. And I don't know, I think at some late 20s, I really started to come to terms with that. And it's- What was the shift? I think, I think it, was, it's, it was physical and emotional. Um, I mean, they're the same thing. But, you know, it was, it was me on a path of diving deeper in my artistry, which pushed me to dive deeper into my person and what 
what am I expressing? What am I living? What am I doing? How am I thinking? Um, it was me coming to terms really for real in, with my sexuality and realizing how much of that uh, was weighing on me in ways that I didn't know that it was weighing on me. And through that realizing I have all of these boxes that I'm trying to fulfill for other people, people that I care about, people that care about me, people that I need in my life. And so not only do I have the boxes, but then I also have the fear of not fulfilling the boxes. And what will they do if I don't fulfill this box for them? Um, and I'm trying to make it a long story short. I saw a few therapists, and one was a craniosacral therapist in Stockholm. Uh, shout out to Banks Elmstrom, my superhero guru, wizard, Swedish man. He, it's very confronting to see someone that you've never met before and have them just read you like a book in one sitting. And, and to realize that they can do that because they've learned the skill of being sensitive. Mm -hmm. So he could feel these things in my body. He could feel them through the tissue physically, but he could also feel them energetically, emotionally. And if I'm walking around with that all the time, that's not gonna be cute down the line. <laughs> so then, hey, hey, maybe there was a goal. That was like my one goal. <laughs> You know, to fix that, to to fix myself, like change my relationship to these expectations. He would he would say to me, like, wow, you put so much pressure on yourself. Why do you do that? And I'd be like, what? Why are you saying that from holding my ankles? I don't understand. <laughs> and it wasn't just him. I saw a few more craniosacral therapists over the years and had very similar experiences. One with a person in London, with a person in Hawaii. And every time it was very consistent, the things that they had to say to me was very spot on. And these are people that I never met before in my life. And it was the last time in Hawaii where I was like, okay, do you, be you, live your life, live your intuition, trust that people will accept. And if they don't, they don't. And that has to apply to everyone. Uh, yes, those, <laughs> those boxes checked make sense. And mm -hmm. I, I remember coming up in dance. I actually wonder, I wonder if there is a way to train dancers, um, that doesn't perpetuate external validation, right? Is there a way of teaching anything that puts the authority in the hands of the students instead of in the authority figure? I mean, dance specifically, I mean, I remember a very literal stick <laughs> that was either, you know, it was slamming into the ground, counting the music, or it was slapping me on the back of the knee or on my, my belly if, if I was doing something wrong. So, and you look to that person for, did I do it right? Am I enough? And that started for me when I was three. And I, I, I didn't go to college for dance, but I would imagine an institution like Juilliard it's that like dialed up. You're doing that hours and hours a day for years on years on years. I don't know how uh, to remove that portion of, of our training process. This is something that's really on my mind. Um, and I, I know I'm not alone in that, but um, this idea of, especially as someone who teaches ballet primarily, um, how to approach teaching ballet in a more inclusive way. And, um, you know, my, all of the readings I've been doing lately, um, the first thing that seems important is that you got to name the problem and not pretend like it isn't there. So we have to name, name the idea that ballet is rooted in whiteness and name the idea that it is somehow um, has been self-described as this pedestal, um, this pillar of dance. And uh, I think that's, that's essential to all other dances somehow. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's that, that 
thing that I'm sure we've all heard is like, if you know ballet, you can do everything or ballet is the, the basis of all forms. And that is, um, it's a lie. That's not, not a true statement. It's true for a particular path, which is a particular path. It's not the path. So this, I think first and foremost, we have to establish that ballet is a form of dance, not the form of dance. And then how do you approach learning it, honoring it without letting, without um, allowing it, and I mean this both as a teacher teaching it, but also as a student taking it, how do you how do you make sure that you're honoring it without letting it tell you that it knows something about you as a dancer? Because many of us have this relationship with ballet as it being a standard of dance, then the aesthetics of ballet become a standard that um, I know my my body doesn't always accomplish. Um, my feet don't do the thing that it's supposed that they're supposed to do for ballet. My rotation, my range of motion, all of those things. I don't I don't check those boxes, but I can still honor that work in ballet and approach it honoring my values about capital D dance, not ballet as dance. If that makes any kind of sense. But even that is a it's a deformation of where it came from. Because it was never intended for people to rotate their feet away from each other 180 degrees or to lift your foot above your head to the 12 o'clock. That was never the intention. We applied that. All of that came later. Right. And that's, I mean, that's the ballet and many other dance forms and genres, right? So even that thing that we're, we're fighting up against, we have to remember that comes from people. Yeah. That comes from a particular person or a particular group of people desire or fantasy and now we're all trying to fit into that fantasy we're missing the we're missing the root point mm -hmm. everyone can rotate their legs in some degree of fashion because legs do that everyone can turn their arms in and out in general because arms do that so it's not about well, your body does something my body doesn't do. Mm -hmm. Everyone's bodies do exactly what they need to do to that dance floor. That's why I like to talk about turnout and experience as opposed to a shape. Like it's not a result, it's something that you're actively doing. And when we make things a movement, I think we allow them to be fluid as opposed to the static idea of arrival and position and aesthetic and shape. I think we get bogged down in ballet by that a lot, like moving from pose to pose, like you heard me talk about today. How do, I mean, let's emphasize the move part, moving from pose to pose, <laughs> you know, instead of moving from pose, pose, right? Like, what are you emphasizing? I think it's super important to stay curious for more information and to assume that there's more that you don't know than that there like then there is that you know, always assume that there's more out there. However, you do know what your values are as a dancer and you know what your values are from an early age and you can pursue those values in any form you go into. There's not um, like musicality, coordination, organization, relationship to space, relationship to time. Those things exist across dance. They're not, they don't belong to any particular technique. So whatever you love about those things, find it in whatever form you're working on. And then you're working inclusively, I think, for your, in your own body. Well, I think, Spencer, the other thing that you did in class today that, that I thought was very inclusive was um, you talked about energetic ideas opposed to physical explanations, physical ideas or physical pictures of what is right and what is wrong. Um, it was very much about energetic ideas. And the, the one that stuck with me and that I'll be hearing in my head as I turn out and as I lift and as I oppose is this idea of forever. You said, turn out forever, open your back forever, uh, root your legs forever. And it became like, this makes me emotional because it's now timeless. 
which is something that kind of breaks my heart about dance, especially live dance, is that it only truly exists in that moment. Even if it's captured on film, the, the actual moment of it, God, I just wish that it could last forever. But when you explained those shapes, those poses, if you will, as becoming eternal, it was an emotional experience, and and that is inclusive. I thank you for for that observation, and I I totally I mean speaking about bringing information from other forms and other experiences into right now we're talking about ballet, so into this particular form, that information I've learned and developed from from learning and developing my relationship with Jermaine. Uh, this idea of endless directionality and opposing forces and opposing um, energies in the body. That's something that I was first introduced to by him and it's something that we really privilege in the work that we make together and in our in our improv practice and in all of that stuff. So then again, the thought is it, that it doesn't have to just belong to that practice, like that improv phase or that creative space with Jermaine, but I can actually invite it with me into my ballet practice or any other practice that I'm in. And I just think, I just think that that matters. That does matter. Is it possible, you guys, new idea, auditioning it on you now, is it possible that improvisation is the foundation of all styles? because everybody's body is their own. And if the body is the tool of dance, then a degree of mastery of your own body and a communication of your own body in the moment, from moment to moment, is, is essential. I'll tell you what I, my experience with improvisation is that I really didn't like it because no one was telling me what to do and I didn't know how to be good at that. I didn't like it until post my time at Netherlands Dance Theater. So I'm like a grown up person running around the dance world. Not loving improvisation. And, and, and not being improvisation into my world until I joined a company that is rooted in improvisation, the Foresight Company. And that was a real hard um, awakening to to have somebody say to me well how do you want to do it which is essentially what that proposition was you're going to improvise in this show so you're demonstrating what do you think essentially and i was like i don't know what what should i think is how i answered that i didn't know how to answer that and i was 26 seven something like that at the time and I, and I just felt like, wow, this is, this is really late in the game to not even have a clue what my, how I want to move, how, what are my instincts, what are my values. Right. And it was in those two years of working there that, of, and just being immersed in improvisation that I really learned, what do I care about? What are my values? What are my impulses? Uh, and that work, that exploration has just fully permeated everything. I mean, it's, it's like, um, like a good kind of an infection, not the COVID kind, where it's, it's just, I find it everywhere now. I didn't, I didn't know that person before. I didn't know the person that knew what, uh, what they wanted in dance and knew how to make choices in dance. I only knew the person that knew how to be told what to do. Right. I think it is a risk um, to be always told what to do and told what to think and not taught how to think. Dance taught me a lot, you guys. Dance taught me a lot. And some things that you might not expect, like how to manage my time or how to uh, work in a group, how to resolve some conflicts, right? Um, but it did not teach me how to think. And it certainly didn't give me confidence in my thoughts. If I ever had it, if I ever had any confidence at all, it was because somebody told me that it was good, but I, I rarely had confidence in my thoughts. Right. And I feel like we're touching on something that, especially in this moment, uh, is important to be thinking about is that, you know, we're speaking a lot about dance, like, Western civilization and this culture, dance concert, I'm speaking about concert, dance culture, um, fine arts, 
big quotation marks, education, uh, why are those fine? Um, we're talking about like, you know, what I didn't know, like someone taught me how to dance. Well, somebody taught you these particular forms, but again, everyone knows how to dance because they have a body. Like everyone dances and yes. dancing since the beginning and before somebody decided to hold a class. <laughs> Just, you know, like people were teaching and learning from each other as a way of communicating, as a way of expressing, as a way of existing, as a way of, you know, uh, keeping track of their stories and their histories and, and all those things. So it's just, it's very important to remember we are really affected by like the, the forming and the codifying of, of the idea, but everybody dances. I, I know this because I know babies that wiggle in their car seats when music comes on. And nobody said, do that. And nobody said, put your shoulders down. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I just think it's also worth noting that the way that Jermaine was just talking about that need to codify is also like this idea about the need to define in terms of goal setting, like what he was speaking about before, this idea to just let it be experienced is, is the information you need in order to know how to engage with it. Um, yeah, what is, what is this need to define it, to like set it in concrete and make a statue out of it? Um, and is that what we have to do to it in order to relate to it? Or is that what we need to do to it in order to remember it? Like uh -huh. 400 years from now, if my generations passed down want to find out what I was doing at this time, how would they find it? you know, how, how would I know the important players of this thing if this thing didn't have a name um, in this in this kind of information age where you have to know what you want to search for in order to find it? I, I mean, that's to me, that's maybe the only well, certainly the best way that I can the best reason I can think of giving things a category or a name is simply so that they can be recorded and found later. Um, but yes, I've seen that genrefication as being so divisive. And Jermaine, you mentioned earlier, like you mentioned that the dance world is very separate. And it's weird to me that for as small as it is, there is so much distance between the groups. It is so sectioned off. Because, it, because there's so much hierarchy in the structure of it that is about creating exclusivity and elitism. And ultimately, I think we all don't respond to that very well. I mean, at the top of it is, is whiteness and, and privilege. And I think you, you touched on it right away with that idea of like who decided what was fine versus fine art, because that's that's why we spend more time in ballet in college programs than we do in other forms of dance, um, because things were defined and those things were defined by by white people. Yeah, that's heartbreaking to think how much is being left out. Um, I think about when you use the word fine in relationship to fine art, I think about fine China <laughs> and that, that, and, and how rarely it gets used and dance is so useful. It might be weird coming from somebody who operates primarily in the commercial space, but dance is useful. It has function, connective um, expressive and to think of how much dance isn't getting used because it's not considered fine like how many hip-hop programs are there on the university level street styles freestyles there's a huge problem there I mean there's also a problem there though because the idea is like you need to access information through this place in order to be successful 
and that also isn't true. You can be a phenomenal, incredible artist without having to go to a university. The university doesn't benefit really Certainly not. I'm a person that teaches at university, so that might sound really weird for me to say, but it's something that I'm thinking. I've been thinking about it a lot. This idea of like, I have to go to this place in order to attain success in the next level. And that ain't true because the hip hop teachers that are teaching in the university, they taught themselves. Right. <laughs> you have you have proof that it isn't essential, yet yet the high price point would make you believe that it is. Simply because it's that expensive, it must be important. You know, we have to remember that even though we see that and it's super shiny and impressive, that is not the end end all. That is not the only definition of success. It's like everyone does not need to be Beyonce. And everyone won't be Beyonce. You know, we're saying, look at Beyonce, listen to how she did it. You can do that as a way to inspire people. But the flip side of that is like, there is one Beyonce. Mm. And if you don't become her, that's also okay. You can do something else. You can still make music on a different level for a different person and that can be successful. What is success to you, Jermaine? I think success is living into, I was going to say with your purpose, but I don't want that to sound too esoteric and like religious. Um, <laughs> it's living with intuition mm. um, and letting that also cultivate how you interact with your Spence, I'm I'm curious what you'd say. Yeah, I I think especially lately I'm I'm feeling similar to Jermaine. Um, I can recognize different times in my life when I felt feelings of success, and what it feels like to me is purposefulness, um, happiness is in there. And I think that that has come in my life when I felt like I'm really listening what I actually want to do as opposed to what I feel like I should do and have felt like a good um, <laughs> balance of those moments. What I've struggled with in the past is worry about what I should do. And I guess I never spoke about the goal setting idea. My relationship to goal setting sometimes gets complicated for that same idea of creating tunnel vision like I talked about early on this thought about the goal kind of taking over my sense of self or, or being present with what's actually happening. And what I, how I'm starting to understand it now is to be just a little bit vague, blurring edges so that things can transform. When I try to specify the goal sometimes too frequently, then I make the pursuit of my happiness not so honest. So to me, to circle back, success feels like really being honest with myself about um, what I'm actually looking for as opposed to what I um, expect myself to be looking for or what others might expect that to look like. Gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough. You've blown my mind several different points during this conversation. I'm not shocked by that because this is what you do. Thank you so much. I love you. Thank you so much. Love. Thank you. Bye. Thought you were done? No. Now I'm here to remind you that all of the important people, places, and things mentioned in this episode can be found on my website, thedanawilson.com slash podcast. Finally, and most importantly, now you have a way to become a Words That Move Me member. So kickball changeover to patreon.com slash WTMM podcast to learn more and join. All right, everybody. Now I'm really done. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you soon.